The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. The go through some emails, check your calendar, see that you have a 45-minute break in the day between meetings, realize this is your moment. So you drive right to McDonald's to pick up something extra delicious ASAP meal. Thank you. There's a meal for every moment at McDonald's. Buy one of your select faves and get another for just a dollar every morning, like a sausage McMuffin or hash browns. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Valid for product of equal or lesser value. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Cabo meal valid when product served. Tonight, it's the biggest night of the year for podcast fans. Our 2021 iHeartRadio Podcast Awards. These are really some of the best and brightest and smartest and most compelling minds in the country. Celebrate the podcasts we've leaned on for laughs, headlines, stories to get our adrenaline pumping, and voices to comfort us. This is a huge honor. We did it! Thank you to my listeners, because without them, this wouldn't happen. Don't miss our 2021 iHeartRadio Podcast Awards. Watch on iHeartRadio's YouTube and Facebook, and listen on our iHeartRadio app. Tonight at 9 p.m. Hello and welcome to episode number 37 of the LSR podcast. My name is Matt Brown, joined each and every week by the brightest minds in all of the gaming industry. I have Adam Candy. I have Dustin Galker. I'm glad to be back in the saddle this week. I have a voice which uh, actually is trying to go away from me yet again. So uh, hopefully I'll be uh, here for next week, but we will see how this goes. The weather and the uh, the sinus gods are not playing very fair with me right now. That is unfortunate, but we're going to get through this podcast. We're going to power through here. We have a great interview with the AGA's Casey Clark, so stick around for that. Of course, we will talk about the news and notes of the week and a couple of big stories here. We have a... Uh, a Minority acquisition, but it it will end up being a majority stake in a major media company. We'll talk about that. And there has finally been some clarification as to what went on with that millionaire maker contest. We'll talk about that as well. But let's kick things off here. Adam, thank you for holding down the the fort last week. Uh, The velvet voice. I was able to listen to the podcast and your your velvet voice in the place of mine, I have to admit, was probably welcome to most listeners. I'm not going to argue that. We could probably just move on right from there. Yeah, um, that, that's a pretty safe bet. But you know what, man? We're happy that you're back. It felt a little bit weird just having Dustin and I kind of bantering back and forth without you kind of pulling us all together as the ringmaster of our little circus. We need well, somebody who's uninformed to, to ask us questions. <laughs> that's, what we need. that's true. That's true. I, I, I'm, here, I'm here to learn just like the rest of the people that are – uh, listening to the podcast here. So let's go ahead and kick things off here with uh, West Virginia. And it seems like we have a new entrant here into the West Virginia market. That is the case. Uh, it's not actually a new entrant so much as an old entrant and then another new entrant to go with that. So Delaware North, very notably had to shut down its betting operations in March of 2019 because its deal with Miomni fell through. I mean, you had a dispute between those parties. You had another third party involved in this. The whole thing blew up very famously. uh, Our Eric Ramsey did a great article about that back in August. And now Delaware North is back with a new partner. So they are having IGT manage gaming at I should say sports betting at Wheeling Island and Mardi Gras casinos. They also have Bet Genius in there as part of that deal, uh, providing some trading services and some data. So good to see that West Virginia is just about back up to a full house again. Also got news uh, this week that BetMGM is launching its app via the Greenbrier, which also has managed the uh, app for FanDuel in West Virginia up until now as well. Looks like there is, uh, you know, Dustin, you actually kind of uh, 
we talked about this a couple of months ago on the podcast that, you know, it looked as if BetMGM was going to kind of be ramping up what they had going on. Of course, when they announced that partnership with Yahoo, it seemed like that was pretty much a signal that they were going to be kind of coming in and trying to make a little bit of waves here. Of course, we've heard in some of the earning calls that they are saying, you know, that they're very still very bullish on sports betting and still looking forward to the potential for the company here. And we know that the BetMGM app is actually coming to Nevada as well. We see it here in West Virginia, and we certainly see the partnerships and the marketing kind of ramping up for MGM here. Yeah, MGM getting more and more serious about well, sports betting. This this joint venture with GBC is obviously uh, they put a lot of money and effort into that. They're they're deploying the sports betting the technology everywhere they can. They they got a skin deal here in West Virginia. This is not a state where MGM has a casino, so first time they've they've done that where they don't actually have a have a presence. So and they're going to be more and more states. They you know MGM constantly says uh, sports and sports betting is a big part of its future. And uh, yeah, new new state here. Um, the, the Delaware North deal also uh, with IGT. IGT is one of those companies that's kind of been behind the scenes of, of, of on sports betting. They work with a lot of different people, and this is them getting you know a little bit more involved with a company that has a presence in multiple states. And Adam, you and I were talking offline, and we actually have seen some of this come to fruition over there in in West Virginia. One of the uh, bigger Super Bowl bets has actually already come in in West Virginia that's been reported. We were talking a a really high six figure bet that uh, you know you're used to seeing it in the Jersey sports books and then in the Nevada sports books, but to see the the uh, West Virginia one inserted in there was certainly interesting. It is notable, if only because of the geographic proximity of West Virginia to a number of other states that either have legal sports betting, have passed it, or are considering passing it. And we really have never seen this market at full maturity because the Bet Lucky app, which was what was the uh, technology for Delaware North, shut down in March of 19. We didn't have FanDuel and DraftKings enter the market until summer of 19. So this will be the first time that we see everyone operating at the same time and really get a picture of what the potential is for West Virginia. Dustin, let's kick this back over to you here. You wrote a story from some information that you were able to get from GeoComply that really broke down where people are going to be betting this weekend. Yeah, this I'll try to describe this in audio form. It's a lot, a lot easier to read the piece over at Legal Sports Report about where people are, are betting online. But GeoComply is a company that uh, provides geolocation services for most of the U.S. online sports books, and and as such, they have access to to data about player volume. It could share a little bit of bit of that. They can't re, uh, give us numbers in exact terms of like this is exactly how many bettors are, are betting, but they can give us kind of who's betting where, uh, kind of on a comparative basis. So we have seven states where they operate and are the are the only real operator as far as geolocation services. And they can tell us that we see about, you know, uh, I think it's 70% total is coming from New Jersey and Pennsylvania. That's of the seven states with the, with fully online. This is not including Nevada where they don't operate in Iowa where they don't aren't exclusive. They had 70% of online betting the rest of the country at legal sportsbook is taking place in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Um, it's, it's interesting that Pennsylvania, which just launched online sports betting this summer, is already pretty close to New Jersey. Now, that's maybe not a shock because there's just more pencil people in Pennsylvania, but it does uh, point to the fact that Pennsylvania is probably going to have more people betting and more money flowing through the ecosystem uh, pretty soon. Um, the other data we saw here, uh, Indiana doing really well for its early days. It's, it's in terms of per capita population about what you'd expect um, for people betting online, obviously helped by proximity to Chicago, as we talk about on this, this podcast a lot. And uh, the states that aren't doing as well, aforementioned West Virginia, Oregon, and Rhode Island. Uh, Oregon and Rhode Island both have monopoly sports betting operation. West Virginia um, and, and all three of those states are seeing less volume by player by by better than you'd expect by based on their population of this pool of states. So, a um, uh, little bit of just interesting data, and yeah, it'll be we'll we'll see we'll see how that bears out in the future. There's just you know, Super Bowl is the biggest acquisition point in all of these states as far as a single day of of people betting. So uh, it'll be a key point to, to see how people do. And when, when we see the revenue figures start rolling in in the next uh, couple months around the Super Bowl. 
that was definitely a very good verbal explanation of the article. And as you mentioned, you know, this and all of the stories that we talk about here, you can find on LegalSportsReport.com. This one might be a little bit better to go in and take a look at visually. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting stuff and certainly something that if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably interested in as well. Um, as always, we are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, all the different places. So go in there, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you don't have to come and find us each and every week. It'll just be delivered delivered to your phone for you every single time we post one of these things. And of course, we appreciate your rates and reviews on all of this. So we talk, we're going to talk to Casey Clark a little bit later here, Adam, but the AGA did come out and put out a, some Super Bowl numbers. They are estimating as to what they might be, what we might be looking at from uh, the Super Bowl and what will be bet in total here. Now, there was some misreporting. I think there was just maybe just a little bit of a, a misunderstanding as to some of those initial numbers that came out, and uh, they were quick to be able to come back and help help us understand that, no, 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 that's not exactly what we meant with all this. But uh, what did the AGA have to say about all this? This has become an annual endeavor of the AGA to talk about how many people are betting on the Super Bowl and how much money is being wagered on the Super Bowl. So let's start with the top nine numbers that were reported. The American Gaming Association did a survey that suggests that 26 million Americans are going to bet on the Super Bowl in some way, shape or form this year. And that a total of nearly seven billion dollars with a B in handle is going to be taken on the Super Bowl. Now, what was as you said, misreported, and there was a little bit of confusion on the call at first, was that initially there was some thought that the AGA was saying that it was $6.8 billion legally being wagered uh, on the Super Bowl, which would be fairly remarkable and probably off by three to 400%. So that's why we have to clarify that that $6.8 billion includes people betting with bookies, people betting casually, playing squares with family or colleagues in the office. The notable part of the 26 million number is that we're expecting that that's about 3 million more people than wagered last year. Uh, Some other facts that came out of the survey that uh, was conducted by Morning Consult, they expect that nearly 4 million people are going to bet at a legal retail sports book that's up 25% from last year, and that almost 5 million people will bet through an online or mobile sports book legally. That is uh, 19%, and uh, I should say some of that does include offshore books. So it is growing uh, in terms of the legal market. But I think part of what you get with this survey is that the AGA is trying to highlight the fact that as much money as will be captured in the legal market by people who are in states that allow sports wagering, there's that much more money out there. In fact, a factor of about two and a half times at least still to be captured that is going to the illegal and offshore market. And Dustin, whenever we see and hear these numbers that are being touted here, I mean, we understand that this is going to shadow records this year. I don't I think that everybody who's kind of prognosticating on what we're going to see here, that we're going to see record numbers come out no matter how we we go about all this. But as Adam mentioned, I think this is yeah, this is put out to kind of not only prop up the industry and say, hey, look how well the industry is doing. But I think it's also dangling the carrot out there to these other states that seem to be, you know, not calling out any names, but New York and Florida and California and Texas, all these massive states out there that, uh, you know, listen, you're you're you have a massive population. We definitely know that your residents are betting and they just happen to be betting with a bookie or they have to be betting offshore. And you are letting that money continue to funnel out of your state where you could be collecting on the taxes and the revenues there. Yeah, I mean, just the sheer top line number of that many people are going to bet on this, and it's and only a fraction of that is bet via legal U.S. sportsbooks. That's the the big takeaway here. I like to put it myself on a limb. I did a projection of about four, I think there'll be about four hundred million in Super Bowl bets uh, this year at legal sportsbooks. That's a really tough number to forecast, though, because we're we're going with such. So not a whole lot of data. We know what Nevada does. We know about what they'll do. They did around just under 150 million in bets last year. And Nevada seems to be a little bit of an outlier if we were to take last year's data, because we know that New Jersey, despite being pretty doing pretty well, had a lot less betting just on the Super Bowl, only about 40 million last year when online was was uh, you know pretty robust already by, by February of last year. So we had seven states only that had legal sports betting at this time. Now we're up to up to 13 where there are some 
some sort of legal wagers, whether um, it's either online or retail sports books. So, yeah, that's the, the this and this is just one day, one event. This is uh, not in doesn't capture the entire universe of what's going to happen when we have you know mature markets, when online is fully legal everywhere. It is just uh, like a, a tip of the iceberg and, and kind of underlines that point of the Super Bowl as a, as a big acquisition point. And uh, yeah, you're missing the boat if you're not legalizing. And, you know, we're still, uh, you know, a solid six weeks away from March Madness, which, as we know, yes, the Super Bowl is the biggest single day event when it comes to sports betting. But, you know, if we look at the event in its entirety, that they actually get more handle over the course of all of the games in March Madness. So it'll be pretty interesting to see how those numbers come out as well. And, hell, you know, we'll have uh, another six weeks for people in Pennsylvania to try to acquire customers in some of these other states that have been coming online as well. So we'll certainly report back to you guys if we get any sort of estimates or any sort of hard data what comes out of March Madness as well. Over at Legal Sports Report, we have uh, several new, and Adam and I mentioned this on a couple of podcasts ago, we have a couple of new hires that have put out some really great content. One of those is Brad Allen, who did a really good story, kind of comparing the UK and UK, uh, the UK and US markets and how the US might be able to learn a little bit from the UK market over there. Adam, I think you will be able to explain this a little bit better than I can. Sure. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I work closely with Brad and I had seen an article come out about Britain's National Health Service uh, talking about links between problem gambling and, and mental illness. And I wanted to kind of explore that a little bit further with someone who knows the UK market as well as anyone. And Brad Allen has been not only working for EGR covering North America for a long time, but obviously located in London, knows plenty about the market over there. And he wrote a really solid piece talking about how problem gambling was not addressed early enough. There wasn't enough of a coalition with a unified voice. And a lot of that led to backlash against some operators in the UK. And it's sort of a long term lesson learned over a number of years. But when you look at the US market and the fact that so many of the operators who are coming over and having a major impact in the United States, in the early part of the U.S. market, they have U.K. and European ties. These are operators who should be learning lessons from overseas. But the question is, will U.S. regulatory setups put them in a position where they go back to old ways that got them in trouble uh, in other markets? Or will they take the lessons that they've learned in the United Kingdom, in some other places in Europe that are now restricting gambling advertising and gambling stakes and apply those to the United States and, you know, get a, uh, a, a simpler market, I think I would say overall. Dustin, I think one of the points that we can kind of pull from this as well is, uh, well, you know, a lot of these companies that are setting up shop over here in the U.S. are actually companies that have had a bunch of success over in the U.K. So I, I don't think it's out of the question to at least speculate that there has been some pretty good lessons learned along the way and probably a pretty good amount of talking before they even got going over here in the States about what direction they wanted to take, how they wanted to go, the things that they learned over there that to do and to not do. Yeah, you know, th that's true. Um, but this, this is the issue that, that keeps me a little bit up at night because uh, I, I'm not convinced that we're always going down the right path here. I, I think there can be far more resources dedicated to this. I think the, the, the early land grab here can can lead to people being a little fast and loose with um, with responsible gaming protocols and trying to get people to bed and things like that. Um, there's definitely not been enough policy talk at the state level when when these laws are being passed of dedicating money or what's going to happen. You know, we do have one eight hundred gambler that has to be usually there has to be something on on sites and apps saying here if you're having problems do this. But I, th I think there's definitely uh, definitely could be more done on this front, and uh, I, I'm not convinced that we're we'll, we're always going to get it right. Do I think we'll have the kind of, uh, of of huge backlash that we we saw in the UK? No, I think I think we're, we're Adam's right there, and and Brad and and everybody's like we've all learned a little bit from the UK. I don't think we're going to go entirely down that path. That doesn't mean we're, it's it's free from pitfalls, but um, the the hope is that the US market gets this right, and that we don't have uh, people messing around with with RG protocols and then mucking up the the legalized sports betting market for everyone. Yeah, I definitely agree there. And, you know, I guess our the most recent 
case study for us and for you and I that we certainly lived through was just the wild west of DFS, right? And there was no regulations really for the longest time. And we saw, you know, some really shady stuff going on. We saw some really crazy things going on. We saw companies come in and out of the business in, you know, just a few months because they were just kind of fly by night, not properly funded, all kinds of things like that. And at least we know at least we know just because of the regulatory status of everything that goes along with sports betting and stuff that has to be done in order to even get licensed in any of these states, at least we know the very bottom, like the worst case scenario, seeing stuff like we saw during the DFS era is at least off the table. Yeah, well, we'll we'll hope we don't have a repeat of that. And we don't think from the advertising front, I don't think we're we're going to get that mostly because, you know, DFS was a national product in in 40 plus states back when we saw that advertising blitz. There's no nowhere near that. uh, Nobody has that kind of penetration yet and won't for for years. You know, DraftKings, FanDuel for their successor are really just in a a few states where they're offering apps. So, um, yeah, we're not going to see we're just and we're so we're not going to see that from at least the advertising perspective, just because of that. Well, I think it'll be a little bit more muted, and that's probably to our advantage as well. So let's, uh, as we do each and every week here, let's take a look at some of the bills, some of the hearings that have taken place over the last week to 10 days here. I will let whoever wants to take Virginia, take Virginia and roll with it. Sure, I can talk about the state of Virginia, which is actually just today, Uh, getting into some discussions about what it wants to do with sports betting. We have an article up from Matt Waters at Legal Sports Report right now. Talk to Senator Jeremy McPike, who says that he believes the votes are there to legalize sports betting in Virginia this year. Now, Virginia went down the road last year pretty deeply. We were expecting, actually at one point, kind of saw it as maybe uh, a likelihood to pass in Virginia. They ended up stepping back at the last second, deciding to do a study not only on sports betting, but on other forms of gaming as well. That study came back saying that you could, uh, in a mature market, realize up to $400 million of potential for sports betting in Virginia. So we're just kind of rolling the ball at this point on Virginia, but hearings today and uh, good prospects, at least according to one key senator in that state. Dustin, you have some news on Maryland? Yeah, Maryland, same, uh, really just starting down the path today. Uh, some bills are, are being heard. Uh, probably at this point, might the, uh, the the hearings might be wrapped up, but two different bills in Maryland were being considered today. Uh, one would legalize online sports betting and one would not. Uh, so you know which one we, we're, we're, we're pulling for there. Uh, if you're, you're just passing uh, the, non, the non-online portion of it, you, you probably shouldn't even bother. But there, there's definitely serious consideration in Maryland. Uh, you know, they've been they were ahead of the ball uh, a little bit on DFS. They uh, they've looked at this a little bit. There's there's a hope that they, yeah they 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 have a chance to do this this year. They're uh, as, as we note they're kind of surrounded on all sides by by sports betting, especially if Virginia legalizes too. You'd have uh, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Delaware already have sports betting. So Maryland would be on an island. Uh, if you're a casino there, you're probably like what's going on? We we should be doing this too. So. Uh, the hope is that's that's kind of this regional pressure we're seeing as, as states do this. Uh, it's going to make Maryland really take a serious look because they're just losing money possibly to other states who, who offer the amenity of sports betting. And last one on the agenda here, Adam, tell us what's uh, going on there in Kansas. Yeah, just actually listened to the hearing that was happening in the Kansas Senate this morning. It's a pretty industry friendly bill that's being considered in Kansas, you would have uh, mobile operators allowed. You'd have uh, tax rates of seven and a half on retail, ten percent on uh, online sports betting. But uh, this is a state with a more uh, conservative climate politically. Judging by the questions that were being asked in committee this morning, I think this is going to be a slow walk uh, in Kansas, if not this year, then then moving forward. But you know, at least the framework of the bill that we're getting started with looks pretty good. And the one thing that I wanted to bring up from listening to that hearing this morning, and it's something we're going to explore a little bit more uh, at Legal Sports Report, is just a bit of the misunderstanding that's out there about verifying who is signing up on mobile sports betting apps. We know that uh, New Jersey has kind of set the, the regulatory model for a lot of places in the country where you can both register and fund your account remotely. Now, the questions that tend to come up in other places are, well, how do we actually make sure that the person who is using the uh, the app on the phone is who they say they are. And it's important to understand that there are robust checks in terms of knowing your customer that these companies have to go through because 
it does not behoove them in any way to bring on people who are underage, who have excluded themselves, who otherwise would have a reason not to be able to gamble. I mean, they're subjecting themselves to huge regulatory penalties if they're allowing people to wager who shouldn't be wagering. So it's important to understand that your information as someone who is legally signing up for a sports betting app, your information is being run through databases to check who you are and make sure that you are who you say you are, that your information has been inputted accurately. That would be very difficult for someone else to do. And so I think that's one of the uh, issues that is emerging across the country and as an educational issue for regulators and legislators. And as always, this is the perfect time to plug the legislative tracker that is right there on the front page of Legal Sports Report. It was already updated at the beginning of January here, probably another update coming very, very soon. So be sure and head over there and take a look at all of the different bills, all the different places that legalization has happened and is yet to come. So that is a really, really good handy uh, resource for anybody who's trying to get a landscape of everything that's going on across this great country of ours now. We appreciate AGA's Casey Clark, who took some time to talk with Dustin earlier this morning about, you know, their initiative and everything that they have going on over at the AGA as we head into the biggest single sports betting day of the year. We'd like to welcome on Casey Clark from the American Gaming Association. He's the senior vice president of strategic gaming communications for the lobbying group for American gaming and uh, casinos around the country. Welcome on the show, Casey. We're going to talk to you about uh, Super Bowl numbers and your recent study uh, that you did uh, or polling data that you have about uh, betting on the Super Bowl. So thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So I guess the, the starting point for this, if uh, we've we've talked before, and uh, let's let's just acknowledge the fact that we're sitting here in 2020 and we have all of these legal options. Even if we're sitting here in 2019, same kind of time, there there were far less options, far less laws on the book. So, like, what have you seen, uh, you know, pre the sports betting ban, and even in, it's just in the last year, as far as as the growth in the interest in legal betting. Yeah, look, I mean, you guys know this as well as I do. It'd be pretty easy to get whiplash looking at all the legalization exercises that are going around the country. I think last year we were looking at 11 legal markets or markets that were looking into it. We're, we're sitting here with 21 now, um, another 14 active states with legislation. So the the pace has been fairly unrelenting in a really positive way, and I think, but but certainly dizzying to people who who maybe don't live and breathe this the way that you guys do. Yeah, so the, the top-level number uh, that you guys came away with was uh, $6.8 billion will be wagered on the Super Bowl. That's via both offshore and, and legal means. Um, obviously, we've done our own projections. I, I you know I, I look at these numbers all the time, the revenue and the handle. And, and um, what are you seeing from the legal market as, as far as in terms of that, that total number that's being that's going to be bet on the Super Bowl in all these states? So, you know, we don't we don't break it down based on legal or illegal. It's really asking customers kind of how they're going to engage. And so it's based on their own kind of admission about how they're going to do it, um, which is which is as close as we're going to get without really having the illegal market help us understand what their books look like. Uh, right. So, you know, I, I think part of it is anecdotal in that in understanding um, the evolution behind like just what we were talking about, the, the rapid expansion of legal options. People are clearly migrating, <clears throat> excuse me, to that. Um, and you're going to see four, you know, four million more people or four million people betting at a brick and mortar book this year. It's like three million uh, more betters in general across the board. So I, I don't think those are all new betters. I think what we're seeing is a transition of people who are finding legal options closer to home uh, and really exercising that opportunity. So a lot, a lot of excitement and I think a lot of opportunity still to come. And, and clearly, as, as, as you know, uh, Dustin, better than, than most, there's a lot of education that still has to happen. So uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be talking about it. Yeah, well, other than that, I mean, we're uh, we're obviously a little inside inside baseball, inside <laughs> D.C., whatever, yeah. for all of this. But what what is that? What's the next step of education? Uh, I mean, obviously, this, again, groundswell. Ton, there's you know, USA, one in 10 American adults will, will bet on the Super Bowl. What what you know that's obviously just a small percentage of the people who will watch the Super Bowl. What what hap- what needs to happen next in terms of you know growing that market, especially in in, in the legal markets of, of for U.S. sports books? 
Well, you know, we, we've been pretty clear that our our interest is not a rush to market, but really a maturation of the markets that exist. And I think as expansion comes online and does so responsibly and takes the right considerations for consumer protection and, and you know, tax rates to make sure that we're offering competitive legal options for consumers and operators alike, I think that the, the education process has got to be helping consumers understand where they can bet legally and, and, and what illegal gambling looks like. Um, because I think right now there's still some confusion about, about what's legal and what isn't. So the more that we can educate consumers about how to find these options, the better off we're all going to be. Um, but really, as markets consider coming online and, you know, those 14 states I mentioned with active bills, I think there's a lot to be to be learned from the successes in other markets. So I think it's going to be a really interesting year as we continue to evolve the legal landscape and give many more American adults the opportunity to do what they've been doing for a long time, but do it, you know, in the, in the daylight instead of in the shadows. You guys operate and, and talk to, you know, obviously major corporations in the space, MGM Resort, Caesars, all these companies that are, um, you know, have a lot of fish to fry in, in gaming and hospitality and all of this stuff. But um, this is this continues to be a major push for the AGA. It was before the, the Supreme Court decision. It's you, you guys continue to make it a, a, a kind of a cornerstone of, of what you're you're lobbying for and trying to educate on. Is is, is that really just you're you communicating the will of, of these large companies and and that they they are really actively engaged on on this on a on a pretty granular level. Yeah, okay. I think that they're they're actually our members are much more involved on a granular level than we can be. I think where where we can provide the greatest value is, is identifying and, and identifying opportunities that would benefit the you know the the broader good for the organization and the industry. So, you know, where where our focus has been, as you mentioned, even before the court invalidated PASPA, has been. How do we eradicate the illegal market? It's pervasive. It's predatory. There's no protections in it. There's no insight into the gaming activity. And so our our focus there continues to be on uh, adding adding insight into the activity through through bringing this above board and getting it under the under the watchful eye of, of experienced gaming regulators. And and what is it that we can do as an industry to to best promote responsibility in that activity and, and ensure consumers are engaging in it the right way. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of, of um, skepticism that, about what, what expanded ga- legal gambling looks like or legal sports gambling looks like. And the truth is if we, if we educate consumers about how to do this the right way, I think there's a lot of opportunity to just diminish the, the predatory nature of the, of the illegal market by, by cutting into their revenue. So I think we're, we're doing a good job. I think the numbers that we're talking about here around Super Bowl and even just the market evolution is a real indication that we're, we're gaining traction. Oh, this is a poll of, of 2,200 uh, adults in the in the U.S. Um, we, if you're looking for some handicapping information, you even had that 52% of the those polled said they would bet on the Chiefs and the the rest would bet on the 49ers. I guess what what is what's the most interesting piece of, of point of data that that came out of this from your perspective? I think that the the number of people and the increase of bettors, you know, who are talking about how they're going to engage in or, or that they're going to engage at all in this betting activity is pretty significant. And I think what that what that shows to me is that the, the continued education around sports betting, the continued elevation of it in the in the public domain about what the opportunities are is is really taking hold. Um, and, and I like the idea that we're seeing significant movement to uh, to, to brick and mortar and. And, and legal options. You know, we've talked before about our research suggests that betters want that opportunity, and it looks like they're now taking advantage of it. So, I'm really encouraged by the idea that we're seeing this much activity and and uh, in the legal market. And I, and I hope that you know next year we're talking even more about increased transitions in those brick and mortar numbers, and even you know online uh, online legal options are going up. And part of all of this too is is trying is. You know, creating synergy with with the sports that are being bet on to the leagues and 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 getting them on board. Uh, you know, previous research you had that said that seventy five percent of NFL betters are more likely to watch a game they have bet on. That that kind of engagement is is why this is this just goes beyond just the gaming industry. This this is a this is something that should be of value to the media and to the, the leagues themselves, and you know, trickles down to players and and kind of the whole ecosystem, right? Look, it'd be no surprise to people listening to this podcast that that in, that having action on a game increases engagement or increases the amount of content you consume or the length at which you consume a game. Uh, you know, DFS I think played that out pretty clearly in terms of how long people will pay attention to contests based on 
player, uh, you know, player performance or, or other things. So, you know, the, the NFL viewer ratings are up 10% over the course of the two legal years with, with proliferation of legal sports betting in this country. I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, and certainly as, as more people are, are watching NFL games, more people are engaging in it for longer. Uh, I think the value of that competition goes up. And, and I think that, you know, th- there's increase in, in fan uh, avidity because of it. So I think there's a ton of opportunity here from a uh, league side, from a team side, and, and ultimately from the operator side. I mean, I don't think we should be coy about the fact that there's opportunity on the gaming side for this. It's, it's as, as you know, and people listening will know that it's not a high margin business, but it's certainly an amenity that, that attracts people to come into the legal market a little bit differently. And so I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for everybody here. And I think our focus is and has been on getting it right. And I think responsibility and responsible gaming is really core to that. So I think we're where you'll see AGA play a really heavy handed role is in making sure that our our new partners who find themselves in the gaming business for the first time really understand that responsibility too. Yeah, that's a that's one that I think always gets missed in, in all of this is is responsible gaming. We we try to to cover it as much as we can over here at Legal Sports Report. Um, but there's there's certainly room to be better. Um, you know, I know like for instance, National Council on Problem Gambling is constantly lobbying for for dedicated funds uh, when when we pass new laws. Uh, is that and I know the AGA member companies as well. They're they're looking at this. They. They they don't want to repeat the mistakes that we've seen in the UK elsewhere on on responsible gaming. Is that uh, I hope I hope we get to see more of that and that continues to come out in in both policy and and uh, from what the companies are doing in the sports betting space. Yeah, I mean certainly we will push for that and, and like you mentioned, our members uh, and, and and others in the industry. To be fair, I think have been a been really front footed on responsible gaming activity for a long time, long before you know even the prospect of of this spread of legal sports betting was even there. Uh, you know, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year to ensure that our employees are trained, that consumers are educated, and and that the right kind of programs to help people who might have an issue uh, get the help that they need. And, and so, I, you know, we take this very seriously. It's core to our to our business, not just as an as an association and an industry priority, but also I think on a more granular level for everyone who's engaging in this in the legal regulated market. I think if you think about you know, how illegal operators are, are able to be successful. They're just not beholden to any of the same standard. And so part of our goal over the next year is to start holding holding them a little more accountable, showcasing what they're doing that that, that is 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 not above board in terms of how they're they're advertising or marketing and and really making sure that we balance and the responsible operators are balancing their marketing and advertising activity with with core messaging around how consumers should engage in this. And, and for a lot of people, this will be a new form of, of how they, they uh, experience the contest so that we should make sure that they're doing it the right way and understanding their limits and doing it with friends and, and really um, and better understanding how to engage in it rather than just kind of you know, jumping into it uh, with both feet. Uh, last question. Do you have any tips for me on what color uh, the Gatorade bath will be? So I can bet on that. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I, I I'm going to show my age by suggesting I think all Gatorade should still be yellow. So I, I'm not going to pick for you, but I think you know, really, lemon lime Gatorade is the I'm an OG Gatorade uh, committed person. I guess Andy Reid was Andy Reid was drinking some red Gatorade on the on the podium the other day. Just saying, just saying. Did that did that tip the odds? <laughs> I don't I don't think it did. <laughs> did the lines move towards red because he was drinking it at the podium? Well, Casey, I know you've I know you've had an aggressive media schedule in the, on the heels of the study. I appreciate you carrying out a little bit of time for us, and we'll hope to have you on again someday. I would always love talking to you guys. Appreciate the time. Thanks again to Casey Clark for joining us a couple of different times. This is now his second appearance here on the podcast, Dustin, and, uh, you know, getting those guys and getting their perspective on the podcast and being able to talk to directly to the industry, uh, I think is really good, not only for us on this podcast to kind of get their perspective on things, but also just for the listeners out there to hear what the AGA is, is, is up to and what they're all about. Yeah, I mean, I just value uh, a, a big co- a big group that has the ears of casino companies, you know, talking about the issue of sports spending. That's that's you know, is, we're, we're they're engaging on the topic, trying to help us with, help everybody have good policy. Uh, you know, they're not lobbying granularly on the state level all the time, but they are pushing this narrative of of, of legalized sports spending is a good thing, and you know, anything they're doing to to help us down that path, I think is 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 work is time and, and effort well spent. 
So we have a couple more of these big stories we want to hit on before we let you guys out of here. And this is one is a follow up from one that Adam and I talked about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And it was the story of The Bachelor, Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise, whichever show. I think they were on all three shows at some point along the way. A couple winning the DraftKings Millionaire Maker. There were instantly people who took to the I mean, there are just infinite amount of ways these days that you can go in and track people's entries and how their exposure player exposure goes in the DFS contests and all of that. And it took them no time to figure out that there were some shenanigans that were going on. If you want to go back two episodes and listen, you can get the full breakdown of how all that went down. And of course, there's a story over on Legal Sports Report. But uh, the ruling has come down here, Dustin. I know this was you didn't get a chance to uh, you weren't on the pod with with me and Adam that time. And so you I'm going to give you the floor here to kind of give your take on on all of this and then how everything went down. Yeah, I mean, the, the news here is that, uh, you know, DraftKings have been investigating this couple who uh, the, the the female half of it, Jade uh, Roper Tolbert, was the was the original winner of this contest at DraftKings, uh, a contest that paid a million dollars as a top prize. Uh, everybody was was quick to point out that that, that evening that, that this was somebody somewhat famous uh, on who had been on The Bachelor, uh, was a woman who had had won this contest. And quickly, very quickly, obviously, people started dissecting this and the and learned that her and her husband were both entering uh, the max amount of, of entries into the contest of 150 each. Uh, their their lineups were were correlated to in that they were had different players pretty much uniquely across both of their entries, all 300 of their entries. And DraftKings over the weekend, Saturday morning, decided to come out and and change the results. Of of that uh, that millionaire maker contest uh, took the top prize or top placing away away from from uh, Jay Tolbert and and bumped everybody up a space. So the person who was in second place uh, got a nice nine hundred thousand dollar bump in how much money they won. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of details about what exactly what happened. Uh, the fact that we've heard almost nothing from those from the Tolberts would lead me to believe that there's been some sort of of settlement behind the scenes because I think we'd have heard a, a some kind of public uh, st- statement from them or, or seen a lawsuit or something like that. So um, they, Tolbert actually erased some some tweets saying that she had uh, won and interacting with the DraftKings Twitter account. So uh, really just the, the, the account was all we really know is that she no longer is the winner of that contest. Now, if she got she got paid, we don't know that either. Whether those accounts are, uh, you know, whether they've been suspended or, or if DraftKings found them in, in actually in, in violation of their terms of service, that's not known. But right now, uh, it's it's kind of resolved, short of of there being any kind of legal action or, or regulatory action uh, from states, as uh, as if anybody wants to take a closer look at this from uh, from a, a possible collusion or a violation of of terms of service uh, standpoint. Yeah. Adam, I mean, I guess that's really what it comes down to, right? I don't know if we will ever know the true story behind all this unless one of the you know states, one of the regulators wants to get the full story behind this because, you know, if there was some sort of NDA, of course, DraftKings already came out and said, we don't comment on specific issues. We don't uh, comment on specific investigations and cases, which is pretty standard practice across any of these type of companies. Uh, there might not, we might not really ever know the entire story here, but I think there are ways to read between the lines as Dustin is saying that should a lawsuit not come from the Ropers, it was either probably a settlement that was done behind the scenes with an NDA involved, or they were just produced a mountain of evidence against them and they will just kind of fade quietly into the night. I think what's important is that as we talked about all the way along here, there are courts of law and there are public courts. And in terms of courts of law, you're right. We're probably never going to know what happened. Um, if you consider just how vocal this couple was at the time of the win and the fact that we have not heard a peep from them since the contrast is stark. Now, when it comes to, you know, the legal side of this, I don't think we're ever going to have the details on the other side of this in the court of public opinion. This is obviously a win for DraftKings. This is what they wanted to come out of this with. They wanted to come out at least creating the perception that, this win was not allowed. Now, if they paid a settlement of six figures or however much behind the scenes, you could debate whether or not that truly was hashtag allowed, air quotes allowed or not. But in the end, 
what DraftKings gets is the ability to say, we didn't allow this win to go through. Y'all can read between the lines and figure out what happened. Dustin, I think the more interesting thing before we uh, go to our final topic here, I think one of the more interesting things will just be is if anything like comes from this, right? It, will there be any addition to the terms of service? Will there be any additional rules or regulations that come from the the DFS sites about this? I mean, you know, it's we talked about it and, you, you know, you and I talked about it offline. Me and Adam talked about it on the podcast. It's it's just incredibly hard when you're talking about a husband and wife where it's the same IP address. It's the you know, if they're using an optimized they're certainly going to use the same account if me and my wife or whatever I wouldn't pay for two accounts for an optimizer like whatever so it's it might be down the line we get to a point where it becomes you know 150 entries per household as opposed to per person because you know stuff like this is just so incredibly hard to to prove without some sort of real real smoking gun and you know people if there's any way to skirt the rules you and i know this from online poker days <laughs> from dfs days from whatever it right. might be i used to play in sit and goes where i come to come to find out later in back in the online poker days where i was playing against the same guy in three of the seats you know like there was like <laughs> stuff like that going on so if there's ways to skirt the rules people will figure out how to do it so uh it wouldn't surprise me if some additional rules and regulations come down out of this yeah, I mean, the thing here is it's it's a tough spot. And, uh, you know, I, I, I try to call out DraftKings or, and FanDuel when they've been in, uh, over the years when uh, things are going wrong. The, the, the problem with that is that they've created this uh, aura that they were really trying to stop all this stuff. And it's incredibly hard to stop what, what happened here, like, as you described. Like, who, it's almost immaterial, though, whether, you know, whether she was actually playing with her husband, like th- there's clearly some synergy and uh, people were, were they were using this to to you know skirt the rules, as you say, whether that was a, you know breaking a law or a, or, or terms of service. We, yeah, we're not going to know. But it's you know, it's pretty obvious what was going on here to everybody who's an, an outside observer. It's there's there's not too much reading between the lines that you need to do. So, yeah, it's for, for DraftKings. They, they, they put themselves in a tough spot you know, years ago saying, oh, we're going to stop all this stuff you know they're they're clearly not able to do that and you know this was you know kind of this obviously came out they were they've been you know using the two accounts in 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 not to collude necessarily but they're using them in concert for for sure and nobody found out until she won the million dollars so um it's 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 a really hard spot Uh, if i'm DraftKings in pr people are taking DraftKings to task for the pr here but they've done an absolutely brilliant job because they basically make they they've taken what was a a pretty big scandal and made it go away so they've learned something over the years i don't don't think this is coming back to bite them unless you know again if, if if a law gets triggered somehow i don't you know those dfs laws have been around for years and they really have not been been used for anything on to, to really do much of anything for for anyone. So I, I, I guess I don't see that as a likely scenario either. Um, but, yeah, uh, we'll we'll see. It's I mean, there really are concerns, you know, for the DFS part of this. Like what what is this happened? It got caught. People got caught doing it. What happens next? Is Or, or is this just we have to throw our hands up and say not much really can be done about it. And we all move on with our lives. Yeah, we will. We'll we'll try to reach out to DraftKings and uh, a little bit a little bit down the road and see if there's anything that maybe comes from this from a terms of service anyway. And finally, here, if you are in the gaming industry and you are not a fan of Barstool Sports, well, tough luck because they are about to be all over the place here, and you are going to read about them. From now forward to the foreseeable future, there's no doubt about that. Penn National Gaming has come in and they have bought a 36% stake in Barstool Sports for $163 million in cash and stock. This would value Barstool at about $450 million. The If you guys remember, the Chernin Group had bought the majority stake in Barstool Sports a couple of years ago. The Chernin Group also owns the Action Network, if you are following along in the gaming industry. So they also have another media entity as well in the Action Network. It seems as if the kind of synergies between the two companies maybe was diverging and maybe there was a a need for Chernin to kind of get out of the barstool business. If they were going to stay in the action business, I can't, I'm just speculating on that, but it seemed like the, the two sides weren't really working together uh, at all anymore when it came to creating content and stuff like that. But Adam, this is uh listen, this is pretty interesting because now we have, it's not just a, media deal that we are talking about as you know we were talking about with some of these like the fox bet type situation or the yahoo and the mgm situation now we are actually talking about a casino gaming company owning one of these media outlets 
Yeah, it is a fascinating deal from that perspective. Um, you know, quick reaction before we know all the details and see how this works into all of Penn's other deals that uh, it has with various operators around the country is that this is a big chance. Um, this is really uh, not what I expected when Penn National was talking uh, as early as last summer. I remember hearing the serious discussion of them bringing on a media partner Um Look, I don't think there are a lot of people out there who don't have an opinion of Barstool. Um, it is generally targeted at a younger demographic. That demographic, in some cases, is even below the legal betting age in, in some places. So, you know, it, it is controversial for a number of reasons. Uh, and I do think that, uh, you know, for Penn, this is um, th- this is this is fraught with peril. But, you know, it, it could be. It could be a big payoff and it could be a massive failure. So, Dustin, that's one of the things that Adam just brought up that was the really the first thing that hit me whenever I read this and it came across my Twitter feed was um, just the fact that I and I, I don't I don't know this and we could be proven wrong on this. I, I'll have to like go in and, and certainly I imagine there will be a way for us to be able to find this out. But it seems to me that the demographic from the barstool side of things skews really young i mean they have all of these satellite sites that are like based around colleges right i mean they're like basically college Mm -hmm. campus sites where we know the legal gambling age is 21 you don't really turn 21 until you're you know late your junior year or senior year of college and so um there's at least a very healthy portion of this audience that is not of legal gambling age and so that was kind of the first thing that jumped out to me what did you think as this passed through your twitter earlier this morning yeah i think i mean that's that's part of, i mean I've, there's lots of things to think about in this deal like the, the the that underage facet of it is not something i'd even thought of really either but it's another another complication you know bar but like adam said everybody has an opinion on barstool it's a it's a uh to put it nicely, is a controversial uh, media platform. People people either love it or hate it. Generally, not a whole lot of in between. So for you know, kind of you know, I'd say Penn National qualifies as a you know, it's a very large gaming company, but also kind of vanilla. So for it to be you know, stake its future in in sports betting and and just in general on Barstool is is kind of wild to me. It's not not something that I, yeah, that if you were gonna like plot out the the future of, of U.S. sports betting, you would have said, oh, this makes a ton of sense. We're going to do this. But here's what it does. It does make sense for a lot of reasons. You know, we can poo-poo the idea from from a, a, a potential problems standpoint. Here's what what, what Penn, Penn's getting is a lot of a database of users who uh, you know very valuable, young and male, uh, probably have some disposable income and would like to bet. That's that's something that you know we, we've we've learned over time that casino companies are are need that database. DraftKings and FanDuel are leveraging that database from the DFS days to convert sports betters. Um, so they're they're seeing this as okay, this is our play to get the, that kind of user base without. Uh, and you're, you know, you're paying pretty dearly for it. You're paying a lot of money, and you're, you're going to hope that works out. The other part of it, it's the branding. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if we can sit here and say that a barstool sportsbook brand is is the most compelling brand, but it's certainly better than what Penn National had going for it before. The, you know, had the Hollywood Casino brand, which is was probably going to roll everything out as, um, you know, barstool as a sportsbook brand is, I'd say, argue is, is a lot more compelling. So there's a lot of moving pieces. I, you know, we, I, and again, I've heard everything from this is an amazing deal to this is going to be an absolute train wreck uh and and everything in between as as i sit here i don't know i i i can see it work and i can also seeing it go uh, sideways really quickly for everybody involved so it'll be one of the more fascinating things to watch over the coming years in, in the sports betting industry adam like like dustin said definitely i think it is it is certainly either you're a fan or you're not i don't know any people who casually go to barstool sports they either religiously go several times a day and consider themselves you know, a stoolie or they absolutely kind of despise the brand and everything that it stands for and don't really do anything casually with it. I know a couple of the guys over there, uh, good guys. I've hung out with them before out here in, in, in Las Vegas. And, you know, I think that they understand that some of the, the, the some of the stuff that goes on even is is kind of an act. Right. I mean, it's there's certainly uh, characters that are being played over there, um, you know, throughout all of their the, the content that they produce. And whatnot. I guess from Penn National, my question to you, and of course, we're just kind of speculating here, but with all the other deals that were made and trying to find a niche and where you fit in, do you think Penn National said, hey, look, 
We're not going to be able to compete traditionally with DraftKings and FanDuel. There's already the mainstream tie-ups between Caesars and ESPN and Yahoo and BetMGM. So where the hell do we kind of fit in in all of this? And this just seemed like a place where they could go in and at least carve out a little bit of a niche. Yeah, my question with regard to that is, is the risk worth the reward? Because I don't know how sticky that base is, to put it uh, one way when it comes to Barstool. Um, I don't know if they will extend their loyalty to that betting brand. I don't know if just having the database for that from that perspective means that you're going to be able to convert those people over uh, as easily because uh, you're talking about a different age of consumer. I don't think this fits the traditional way that you would look at it from a sports betting perspective, right? I don't think we can look at it the way we did with the score, where the score, even though it really hasn't caught on in New Jersey, said that 75% of its activations thus far have been via its media app, right? So you can't just say, well, getting the database and operating through the legacy channels that you have is going to get this younger demographic to necessarily stick with you uh, for any length of time. So I think that's one thing to keep in mind. And, and the other part of the risk versus the reward is that, I mean, look, I'm not breaking new ground or putting my own opinion into it to say that there have been some pretty nasty adjectives applied to Barstool and to, as you said, stoolies and some instances of online harassment and uh, charges of misogyny and, and all sorts of other really serious accusations that I'm surprised that a company the size of Penn National with the reach of Penn National is willing to make as large of a bet as it has on. I can tell you this, guys, it's never boring in this industry for us. And this is kind of what is awesome about this podcast. We are going to have no shortage of stuff to talk about over the next several years, because uh, seeing how this all plays out, seeing how the Fox bet thing plays out, seeing how the Yahoo partnership plays out, seeing how the score plays out, all these different things are certainly going to be interesting for us to follow. That deal allows Penn to up its ownership to up to 50% in three years. And then there is a stipulation as well, where they could end up taking full ownership if they so choose. So it could be a company that is fully owned by Penn National in, you know, four or five years from now. Yeah, should we, that I mean, we could we could keep creating content probably just about the media uh, side of this. Right. Thing, right. They're, 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 like there's uh, we have still have NBC Sports hanging out there. CBS Sports hanging out there. They both uh, are, you know, very invested in, in content related to sports betting, but haven't really, uh, you know, haven't shown all their cards. They have certainly have plans. ESPN is the, the golden goose hanging out there. They clearly get into betting content, uh, have a deal with Caesar Sportsbook, but they, they've kind of only tipped the iceberg, too. So there's there's tons yeah, more and, out there. Uh, uh, Sinclair this, bought yeah, all those regional end. networks like Sinclair yeah. bought all those regionals. So they're definitely going to do something thing as well they own the tennis channel as well which you know so yeah it's it's we, we got a lot just from that side of things to follow much less all the stuff that's going on from a regulator standpoint so uh will be a fun few years for sure so this podcast won't be going anywhere unless this uh whatever virus i have ends up taking me out here so that's gonna you don't be have the coronavirus only. Do you? I, I, I hope not I, I hope not i'm actually going to, when we get off here i'm actually going to go to the urgent care again even though i went last week and i'm going to be like hey I, do I have the coronavirus? Like, can you just like rule that out at least? Like, let me know for sure that I don't. I'm glad, have that. I'm, that glad I'm here in the safety of Oregon, away, <laughs> away from your, away from your breathing. Guys, as always, everything that we talk about is located over on LegalSportsReport.com. So be sure and head over there and read all of these articles in their entirety. You can subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. We do appreciate each and every one of those. And of course, you can follow on Twitter at LSP Report for Dustin for Adam. I'm Matt. Talk to you guys next week. The go through some emails, check your calendar, see that you have a 45-minute break in the day between meetings, realize this is your moment, so you drive right to McDonald's to pick up something extra delicious ASAP meal. Thank you. There's a meal for every moment at McDonald's. Buy one of your select faves and get another for just a dollar every morning, like a sausage McMuffin or hash browns. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Valid for product of equal or lesser value. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Cabo meal valid when product served. The go through some emails, check your calendar, 
See that you have a 45-minute break in the day between meetings. Realize this is your moment. So you drive right to McDonald's to pick up something extra delicious ASAP. Meal. Thank you. There's a meal for every moment at McDonald's. Buy one of your select faves and get another for just a dollar every morning, like a sausage McMuffin or hash browns. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Valid for product of equal or lesser value. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Cabo meal, valid when product served. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.